Hello and welcome to the UW Political Economy Forum podcast. My name is Nicholas Wittstock. I'm a graduate fellow at the Forum. Today I'm speaking to Mark Allen Smith. Mark is a professor of political science at the University of Washington and the author of two award-winning books, Secular Faith, How Culture Has Trumped Religion in American Politics, and American Business and Political Power, Public Opinion, Elections, and Democracy. Mark is a regular commentator on national and state politics for print, radio, and television outlets, and in his teaching has focused extensively on discussion, dialogue, and political polarization in an age of hyperconnectivity. Hello, Mark. Hello, Nicholas. Mark, it's great to have you on. Today, we want to discuss some big ideas, some big topics, and in particular, how science can inform how we make political decisions. In 2020, I think you can get the idea that many people say that public policy should be based on science and science exclusively. Do you agree with that framing? I agree partially and, and disagree partially. So let's first give credit where credit is due. We are now at the beginning of a period of widespread vaccine distribution uh, here in the U.S. And, and elsewhere in the world. And this is a massive uh, success for science in that we have many uh, previous vaccines, which are also massive successes in, for science, where we've uh, either eliminated or greatly reduced the incidence of uh, scourges on American and world society that have existed for you know, millennia, uh, smallpox, polio, uh, measles, uh, mumps, et cetera. And previously, the quickest we've ever developed a new vaccine, I, I believe, has been four years. And then um, I'm sure everyone remembers back in February and, and March, when you know coronavirus was first on the scene, uh, the projections among everyone in the, the expert communities, the public health domain at that point, they were saying, and eh, we're probably looking at a year to a, a year and a half before um, you know realistically we will have vaccines available. And yet here we are by um, middle of November, there, there were vaccines that had already been you know, tested and shown to be effective and, and safe. And that was after, um, you know, at that time the, the announcement came out so that, you know, we're looking at something like eight months. So we, we have um, vaccines available now. Lots of people are starting to get vaccinated. Uh, of course, we don't have enough vaccine at this point. So there's lots of other debates about who's going to get the available supplies. But, you know, as a baseline right now, uh, this is a good time for science, vaccine development. They, they work. Um, they, they, they are going to uh, reduce the, the spread. So right now, I would say it's a massive success for science. So I could see why a lot of people would have a starting point of, hey, science is great. Let's just base public policy on science. You know, the same way that we develop these vaccines, well, why don't we just do public policy? What does that mean? How would you do public policy the same way that you uh, develop a vaccine? I think to most people, science is something that, yeah, is being done by people uh, with white lab coats. How is this relevant for policymaking? Well, this is the part where I get off the bus, at least uh, partially. So science is best when it's dealing with a tractable problem for which you can collect clear evidence where you have clear expectations, you know, hypotheses that can be tested, where we have a, a framework in place where we can evaluate, was our hypothesis true? Was our hypothesis false? And in a way, vaccine development is almost the, the perfect application of this because you have a a, a potential vaccine, you can set up a randomized controlled trial where you can bring in um, um, you know, tens of thousands of, of participants. You can track them over time. Uh, how many people get exposed to the virus? How many people develop the virus in the, in the treatment group, in the, in the control group? You can chart out their, the effects. You can measure things like, well, were there incidental you know, side effects to the virus and so on? So that, that's almost like a perfect situation for a, a tractable problem that, that science can handle. 
Meanwhile, and here's the point where I want to be uh, at least somewhat of a, of a contrarian, is to say to try to base public policy on science is, a, is an entirely different problem because public policy is just far more complicated than, than developing a, a vaccine. Because public policy, it has many different parts. Um, it deals with you know, human beings, uh, some of whom are fully engaged, some of whom aren't paying much attention. Uh, there's all kinds of, of um, you know, other players. There's, there's uh, governments at different levels. There are you know, businesses, charities, you know, just people going on with their daily lives. So public policy is, is just inherently far more complicated um, as a scientific problem than is something like vaccine development. So as a result, if someone says, well, we should just base public policy on, on science, my response would be, okay, sounds great, but wh what do you mean base public policy on, uh, on science? Because public policy, it's, uh, it's, it's, more, it's more complicated. There are many more players involved. And then there's this other element of public policy as well that includes you know, value-based judgments, nor normative judgments. These are also a part of, of public policy. So people will sometimes say, well, wouldn't it be great if we could just get all the politics out of government or, or get all the politics out of, uh, out of politics? Let's just, let's just run our political system, you know, completely eliminating any political considerations. I would say, again, sounds good, but politics invariably involves value choices. And not everybody has the same values. It involves normative commitments. What's the kind of world that you think should be? And how could we use public policy to get there? Well, not everybody agrees upon the world they are they they would like to uh, aspire to. Uh, and then, as I mentioned before, there are all these complexities with with differing moving parts. So, as much as someone might want to be a, to base public policy on science, it simply cannot be done, both because the problems are too unwieldy and because there are non scientific questions that are invariably part of politics that involve value judgments that involve normative commitments that are simply outside the scope of science. So how do we make collective decisions then? How are decisions made? What are they based on? Um, if legislators, the executive branch, if judges, um, how do they make decisions if not uh, using evidence or, or in some way using scientific methods? Well, I would say they, they of course, do use, use, use evidence, uh, but they, they, use, they use a lot of things. So for, for judges, which you mentioned, they, they have a specific kind of protocol where certain kind of cases you know, will make it into the courts and there are rules in place about how they will, will be adjudicated and so on. Uh, for executives, they're operating under, under um, you know, uh, a grant of authority that's been given to them by by previous um, legislation, and then for legislators themselves, um, they have rules about how do they you know enact new laws and and uh, make revisions to existing laws and, and so on. And then in turn, they are all taking in lots of other lots of kinds of information. One of the kinds of information they are taking in is is about scientific claims, but also things about you know just their 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 political support. So for, if you're a legislator, the first thing you have to do is get elected. So science may well say we ought to do X, but if everybody in a particular legislator's uh, you know, country or district, depending upon what kind of representative system you have, uh, if, they all, if they object to that policy, well, it's probably not going to happen because uh, people don't want it. And therefore, the, the, the legislators um, are going to object to it. Meanwhile, they, they may be responsive, say, to certain kinds of interests, like maybe there are important um, you know, business groups that are, that are active in their area, 
And you need to win over the support of them in part because they provide jobs or maybe they provide, you know, connections and other sorts of benefits, campaign contributions for the legislators and so on. So all of that could factor into their uh, decision making. Uh, meanwhile, I mentioned before that public policy has value commitments built into it. Well, those the legislators themselves have their own value commitments. Different legislators would have different kinds of commitments. And all that's going to shape their, their, their decision making. So the, the political decision-making process is inherently unwieldy. It's, uh, it's complicated. Uh, someone might want to say, wouldn't it be great if we could just go in and you know, rationalize this and make it all you know, logical and consistent and, and uh, you know, let's, let's just, just, quote, follow the science. Um, with, for the reasons I mentioned before, that simply can't be done because there's value commitments at play that are not, strictly speaking, the domain of science. And then there's the additional problem that not everybody agrees on what the science shows. Uh, because for, for, for public policy decisions, they're, they're simply more, more complicated, they're harder to assess than a matter like, did this vaccine work or did it not work? That's the kind of question science can, can handle. Uh, we've got very good evidence now that the Moderna vaccine, the, the Pfizer vaccine, um, the, the Oxford vaccine, others that are, that are coming on, they've, they've been proven to be safe and effective through randomized control trials, uh, but we don't have that for the realm of, of public policy. And as a result, people have to come in and they, uh, you know, they argue, they, uh, in an ideal world, they, you know, engage each other. And uh, if you say the best public policy is X and someone else says, no, the best public policy is Y, um, ideally, you would have to make the case for why you think X is the best policy and someone else would make the case for why they think Y is the best uh, policy. Um, and we would sort of have a you know, dialogue and try to hash it out. So would the world be a better place if scientists did make public policy, if they did somehow get over the politics in, in some hypothetical world in the same vein? Could you give us an example of a problem that uh, scientists, however empowered, would not be able to solve in any meaningful way? Well, let's take something like uh, climate change, where there's an overwhelming consensus that uh, climate change is real. It's primarily human, human caused. We understand very well the mechanisms by which it happens. Now, there's still lots of, of uh, you know, room for a new research around the edges of you know, frequency of hurricanes and, and uh, you know, ice melting and various kinds of like dimensions of, of climate change. But the fundamental problem is very well understood and is uh, the subject of a wide consensus. So in turn, you might say, OK, great, we've got a consensus that climate change is a serious problem. Um, let's just go to climate scientists who are in areas like you know, geology, atmospheric sciences, uh, you know, some, some overlap with physics and some other areas. And let's, let's just go to that body of scientists and say, well, hey, why don't you tell us what public policies we need to put in place? That's the point at which I would offer some com complexities to say, well, first of all, your public policy, identifying a, a problem is quite different than identifying a, a public policy that might address that. Because for one thing, climate change is an important problem, but it's not the only problem that we, that we face. We also have, you know, poverty and inequality and, and racial justice and, uh, uh, you know, desires for longer lives and, and uh, desires for a good quality of life and, you know, jobs and lots of other matters. Uh, so public policy uh, is more complicated than simply figuring out is climate change real, is climate change not real. As soon as you start bringing in public policy, We have other considerations. We have to trade off this problem versus other problems. We have to look at the particular policies that are proposed. So someone might say, well, um, I've got a public policy and this is really going to solve climate change. Well, 
are they right? Well, maybe, maybe not. We need, we need a lot of extra analysis of their, their proposed solution. And for that extra analysis, you can't just go to climate scientists and say, well, you tell me, is this the right policy? Because that's starting to get outside of their specific area of expertise. Now we need, um, we need some economists to understand you know, incentives. We need some psychologists to understand how do people interpret their environment? How do they, 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 they act? Um, we need political scientists who understand political institutions and, and power and how do people make decisions under, under uncertainty. Um, we need you know, some sociologists. Maybe we need some philosophers to help us understand what are the concepts that we are, are working with? Some you know, historians, like what, what, what can we learn from um, you know, the uh, history of industrialization and environmental problems and, and so on? So I would say that public policy is inherently a, uh, a multidiscipline, a, uh, a complicated enterprise for which you can't simply, quote, follow the science. You have to recognize that there are going to be many voices uh, at play. Those voices will often disagree with each other. Some people might, you know, say prioritize, you know, jobs more than climate change. Other people might prioritize climate change more than jobs. You, you can't, you know, wish that problem away. It's just inherent to public policy that there are trade-offs. There are people with differing views. There's many kinds of expertise that have to be brought to bear on the problem. And it's not, it's not a simple matter like, did this vaccine work or did it not work? Science is great for those very tractable problems. And public policy tends to be a not very tractable problem. And as a result, it's just inherently messy, many different voices, many different values uh, at play. Uh, and thus, we can't simply, quote, follow the science. But what if we followed a big group of experts in exactly the way of these different uh, disciplines that you mentioned? Let them try to figure out some sort of compromise solution. Would that not possibly approximate an ideal solution to a problem? Yeah, I think that would that would approximate an ideal solution if you if you brought in into play um, the, the the people with various kinds of uh, of expertise on sort of different angles of of the uh, the policy. But even there, I would say that um, no group of experts has exclusive jurisdiction over value concerns. So, to the extent that public policy overlaps with value concerns, you can't just turn it over to a relevant body of, of experts. Because um, you know value commitments are something that everybody shares, and and furthermore, the values that one particular group, that one particular expert community might share, might well not be shared by people outside that community. And meanwhile, they might also be able to sort of sneak their values into what otherwise appear to be their scientific claims. Um, so I, I like to try to keep science and values separate. They're, they're both important, but to recognize they're not, they're not the same thing. But um, you will sometimes see some, some groups of scientists for whom they will want to sort of slip the values within their, their, their science in a way as sort of almost disguising the fact that there are value commitments buried within there. I would rather try to pull those value commitments out and recognize that those are things that no specific group of scientists themselves have exclusive jurisdiction over. And we're just going to have to hash it out. You have to have broad public debate. You have to make people aware of what are the value concerns at play and allow that process to unfold while recognizing that, yeah, the political process is, is uh, messy. It's um, inefficient. Um, it's, it, it, it's often arbitrary. It's often tilted towards special interest. Okay, all, 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 all that is true. But even so, I, I don't see any, any alternative to, to, the, to, to politics. So in a way, 
I, I, I kind of bristle when someone wants to try to take the politics out of politics, because I just want to say it can't be done. Now you can pretend that, that you've taken it out, but usually when you're doing that, it's because the value commitments are buried rather than brought to the surface. I'd rather want to, I'd, I'd, I'd rather bring them to the surface and let's just openly debate them rather than try to pretend that there are in fact no value concerns at play. Okay, so there are many experts, they often disagree, it's unclear who to listen to, there, there are trade-offs, there are value commitments that differ in between different um, individuals that are part of whatever society we talk about. Additionally, scientists are often the first to point out that their knowledge is incomplete. So does science matter at all then for collective decision-making? I think it should matter. Uh, and you could, you could go in, in different areas and you can kind of see places where, where, where scientific knowledge seems to matter. It seems to have shaped public uh, policy. And then in other areas where scientific knowledge doesn't seem to have uh, much effect. So that this gets us into a broader realm of how science is perceived in the larger society and, you know, are scientific claims accepted and if so, by whom? Um, so that raises a whole, whole, whole other uh, set of, uh, of questions. Um, the way I would like to think of it is that science can bring us knowledge about certain matters. And then, you know, like I mentioned at the outset, there are certain matters for which the scientific knowledge is more, more confident than, than other matters. And to the extent that we really do have clarity, we really do have consensus on a, on a particular subject, um, particular set of, of, uh, of scientific claims. Those really should guide public policy because, uh, frankly, if you try to make public policy in a way that violates uh, you know, no, known principles of science, your, your policy is probably going to, going to fail. So certainly it would be foolish to ignore scientific findings when de designing public policy. Uh, I'm just trying to make the point here that you can't reduce public policy to scientific findings. So I would want scientific findings to be one crucial contributor mm -hmm. to public policy, but just for us to recognize that we need more than that. Right. You, can't, you can't, quote, just follow the science. There's, there's no such thing as just following science. So science will never give you the definitive answer what the best policy is, but it might narrow the, the range of options to more fully inform your decisions in some way. So where do we go from here? Well, um, we're, we're at a difficult place because science, uh, you know, it, it, it's weird in that, uh, like I said at the outset, science, uh, and you said as well, science is having a great moment. Like right now, vaccine development, this is just a massive triumph. For science. Uh, and you might say, okay, science is riding high. Well, yeah, and on that specific matter, but keep in mind the last nine months where we've had massive conflicts. Um, do masks work? You know, what, how about social distancing? How about uh, if, if people gather outside for, you know, for protests, is this going to, going, going, going to spread the virus? If you go and visit your family for Thanksgiving or Christmas, is this going to spread the, uh, the virus and so on? And all of those have become contentious matters. And, and in a way, this is, I think if you were to said 10 years ago, um, all right, well, let's suppose that, you know, new virus comes on the scene and, you know, yeah, it's not as deadly as, as uh, you know, smallpox or, or something, but yet it's still a serious matter. It's, you know, several times more deadly than the, than the seasonal flu. Um, and so we're going to need a, a, a kind of a massive response to it. Um, you might say, well, great, we would all rally around and we figure out what to do and then we would just go out and do it. I think maybe a, a naive view of 10 years ago might have said that. But virtually from the day that the coronavirus appeared upon the scene, um, we started seeing divisions on 
uh, you know, on masks and social distancing and, and uh, should, should businesses be open, should schools be open uh, and, and so on. All those matters, they quickly became subsumed within our larger scope of, of tribal politics where, um, you know, it, I mean, these days it's pretty hard to get universal agreement that the sky is blue. Mm-hmm. Just because if, uh, you know, if, if, if the Democrats start saying the sky is blue, Donald Trump might say like, well, I don't know, it's, it's, it has a bit of a greenish, you know, tinge to it. <laughs> Then all of a sudden, you know, is the sky blue becomes a, a, a political uh, controversy. You know, frankly, I should say this this does kind of work in in, in both directions. Um, so on a lot of the matters of, of scientific concern, certainly, uh, you know, Trump has been uh, on the against the side of what the most relevant body of experts w- would say. But there's one crucial matter where it was the other way around. Um, and this is in the area of reopening schools. Mm-hmm. So um, being German, you you're, must be familiar with many of the European countries did either never close schools in the first place or they uh, reopened them even as, you know, other businesses were closed down, the schools were kept open. And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, in France, I know this was the case. I think it was the case in Germany as well and, and some other countries. This was absolutely made a priority. And they had some good research showing well, there's not much spread in schools, and therefore you can keep schools open safely. You think it's a, a fair statement of what the what the relevant research was showing? I, I feel like you you've already uncovered um, a potential limitation of science, right? It always takes a moment to to evaluate these things, and uh, we're still going to have to make decisions in the meantime. I would say it's it's hard to tell right now, right? I mean, on the one hand, I would say yeah. it doesn't seem to be as bad as it as I would have assumed it is. So I, to, to that extent, I would agree with you, right? There does not seem to be as much spread now. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's, a, good, that's a good point. So um, I'm probably a better way to say this than what I said before is in many other countries, they made the political decision to keep schools right. open. Now they thought they had some good evidence that there wasn't much spread in schools and that the schools could be open, kept open uh, safely. But as you say, there's some uncertainty around that knowledge. But at the end of the day, that's the decision that they made. In this country, we made the decision to keep the schools closed. Um, now, in part, that's because of the power of teachers' unions. And, and there's been some, some uh, um, claims out there. I'll have to say I haven't investigated them too closely. But the, 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 the claim is the, the probability of a school being open is very strongly correlated to how powerful the local school, uh, you know, teachers unions are. That is the more powerful the unions, the less likely the school was to be uh, open. I can't, I haven't investigated that closely enough to say whether I, uh, I'm confident in that, but that, that might well be the case. But even if, that's, even if that's not the case, something was going on in the U.S. to keep most schools closed. And I would hypothesize that the most important thing was the position that Donald Trump took on reopening schools. So you might remember back in, um, I think it was June and July, when you saw some some important groups saying, look, whatever else we do, we need to have the schools open. So one of those groups was the American Association of Pediatrics, a uh, professional association of pediatricians, not exactly what you would think of as, you know, a quote, right wing group. You know, they're, they have professional expertise. They're probably, you know, somewhat nonpartisan. But to the extent you might expect them to have any sort of, quote, political bias, they're probably more likely to be on the left than the right. Back in June and July, they said remote schooling is awful. It's terrible for kids. Uh, it's terrible for working parents because then they, they can't go to work. So these kids are being cheated out of out of their education. Remote school is nowhere near a replacement. And this, this is going to have long-term permanent damage on their educational prospects. And thus, we need to have the schools be reopened. That was the stance they took. 
this little debate goes on for you know a couple of weeks. Pretty soon, Donald Trump jumps in and says, hey, we need to have the schools be reopened. Well, once he took that position, if you're in the anti-Trump coalition, well, all of a sudden, well, if Donald Trump is for it, it's probably a really bad idea. And if Donald Trump says we need to reopen schools, well, that by itself is good evidence that we should not reopen schools. And then what's the result? Well, the result is, uh, you know, here, here in Seattle, where, where we're recording, um, the public schools have not been open since March. Mm-hmm. So we've got kids now that are approaching one full year, which everybody's investigated this, has acknowledged you know, yeah, there's there's some kids that do okay in this environment. But if you look across the, the broad scope of, of, you know, especially among, among uh, you know, more disadvantaged kids who don't have like an extra parent at home who can, you know, effectively uh, homeschool them, um, this is this is a terrible result for them. And right. yet that is where we are. And I would I would say this is a decision. We, we resulted in this place not because there was ever any science to show that you know, reopening the schools was going to, you know, cause some massive spread of the virus. Um, now, I would say, similar to your earlier point, we didn't fully know. We, we did have some experience with, like, the European countries that never uh, closed the schools, and you could kind of measure, you know, well, how much spread, you know, what's the, the rate among teachers as opposed to other people in the community. And if there was a lot of spread in schools, you would expect it to be, like, say, higher in teachers. Um, and, you know, so there's various tests you could do. And to the extent that we had that data, it showed that the schools were were not a strong vector of transmission. Uh, but the point is, in this country, the scientific evidence didn't matter. It, it became a political decision. And the decision was, we're going to keep the schools closed. And so, I would say this is kind of the way public policy works, that, uh, right. that you know, e- even when in principle you could base public policy on the science, well, often the science is uncertain. And then these other non-scientific judgments come into play, like, well, if Donald Trump says we want the schools open, then that's probably a really bad idea to have the schools open. Therefore, we better keep them closed. That makes sense. But even in this case, even now in retrospect, um, I think it's going to be impossible to prove your 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 uh, suggestion here, right? Your argument that but for Donald Trump's um, support for school schools reopening, uh, schools would have probably reopened. Right. Like, I think it's going to be completely plausible for for everyone to claim that, no, in fact, this was a decision based on science. Right. Based on or or if not that based on the uh, knowledge that a school opening could potentially increase spread of the virus, which I think is a fair assumption also. Right. I don't think anyone who is in favor of school opening would claim that this would not increase the spread at all. I think this is, again, an instance of. the trade-offs that you mentioned earlier, any decision that we make in this context is going to have different costs associated with it. The question is, what costs do we want to bear? Where does this land us on the decision to what extent science does or does not matter on public policy? I'm, I'm sure that many people will claim that this decision was based on science. How do you react to that? I, first of all, I, I, take, I take your point that if you say we had a decision and then you claim, well, here's the reason why we had that decision, that in itself, in a way, is a claim maybe even a scientific claim and, and and it's hard to establish that definitively so i i i totally accept your point there um when you're trying to explain why we make certain decisions which is one of the things that political scientists do um you you kind of look for areas where you can get some leverage over the question uh for example you know comparisons across different countries so if uh you're keeping schools closed is is more of a quote left-wing uh 
position. And yet in France and Germany, they have schools open, but in the US they have schools closed. Then that leads you to start to suspect, hmm, something else is going on here. It, it's not just a matter of, quote, you know, the science showing a certain amount of spread or non-spread in, in, in schools. Because it, it, if the science was really clear, then presumably, you know, all these Western countries that share, you know, some common values and a common heritage and so on would converge upon the same policies. So the very fact that they did not converge on the same policies tells us there's something more at play than simply, quote, the science. And I would offer the hypothesis there was something about the political dynamics internal to the U.S., for which Donald Trump and the position he took is a big part of that, that is very different from the internal politics of France or the internal politics of Germany that led both of them to push to have the schools be open and stay open, whereas in the United States to have them close and, and, be, uh, and keep closed. So at the end of the day, I, my proposed, uh, whatever you would call it, theory, hypothesis for why we kept the schools closed, maybe it's wrong. But in order to try to you know, make those sorts of claims, you, you look for places where you can get some, some leverage for, for, for comparison. Now, I, I also accept your other point that there's always um, competing considerations at play. Um, so maybe you would offer another consideration that I, I've seen make, people make this claim. The schools don't directly generate revenue whereas businesses do. And so we had this weird situation in the fall, um, certainly in the state of Washington, and I think most other states, bars were open, schools were closed. Now, if you think about this, you, you could not design a more, more moronic policy if, if you tried. Bars are open. So you allow people to go in there, you know, sit up, pull up their stool, breathe on each other, you know, crowd a bunch of people in a small space. A, a bar, and most of them aren't, aren't ventilated very well, it's almost a perfect environment for the for the spread of the coronavirus. Meanwhile, with schools, it's mostly little. It's mostly kids who are less vulnerable in the first place. You can spread them out. To, to have bars open and schools closed has to be one of the dumbest things this country has ever done. And yet, one plausible reason why you would do that is the bars generate tax revenue, which local governments depend upon. Schools do not. So that would be an alternative hypothesis to mine that that's the reason why schools were closed is they they aren't revenue generating, right. whereas uh, businesses are revenue generating. And often we, we end up with, in situations in uh, in the social sciences where, you know, there's some phenomena and then people say, well, I think the explanation is why. And someone else says, no, 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 you're totally wrong. The explanation is uh, Z. And then we have this fight, like, well, which quote theory is, is, is uh, correct? And it doesn't have to be that one theory is correct and the other right. is wrong. It could be that they both have part of the story. And, and, and maybe uh, both of these things were in play. Maybe the, the particular tribal politics of this, where, you know, when the American Pediatrics says schools are open, people on the left are like, yeah, yeah, let's have schools open. But as soon as Donald Trump says have schools open, people on the left say, no, 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 that's a, that's a terrible idea. Maybe that's part of the story. And then another yeah. part of the story is that, at some point, the state and local governments need the revenue. They need to have the businesses open to get the revenue. So they're sort of constrained by that reality. Maybe that's part of the story as well. And so therefore, the bars end up being open and the schools end up being closed. Yeah, I think you're going to be hard pressed to find anyone who would argue that your the phenomenon that you've identified here was irrelevant in the choice on public policy there. I think you're completely, I, I think that's very plausible. Are there any other unique factors to the current political situation of the United States that are influencing how public policy officials react to scientific knowledge? Well, one factor that I would point to is a lot of people that are on the you know more democratic uh, or left into the political spectrum, they've adopted the self-perception 
of, you know, we support science. So it, I mean, I wouldn't say that science has, was ever at a place where it was not controversial. You go back to Galileo, you could go back to, uh, you know, the beginnings of vac vaccination, you know, in the, in the 17th uh, century, that was a, a controversial matter, you know, evolution in the 19th century, uh, splitting the atom in the 20th and so on. So science has always been controversial. It, it, it's always had uh, various political considerations that would be tacked on on top. But having said that, one thing that has really changed in the last 10 years or so is that a lot of the people on the left, they like to think of themselves as, well, I just go along with the science. And you've seen things like, you know, the science rally in, uh, in, in the last several years, you know, the protests. Um, I'm thinking more like, you know, 2014, 2015 than, than 2020. And if you look at, you know, Joe Biden, you know, coming into office, one of the things that he said is, we're going to restore the place of science in the federal government. I don't think he was giving like a public speech when he did that. But if he was, you could imagine everyone stopping to clap there. That uh, if you're in the Joe Biden coalition, Joe Biden says, we're going to restore science to its proper place. And then everybody uh, in the crowd is going to cheer for that. Notice what happens if people in the Biden coalition say, you know, we are strongly pro-science. We're going to we're going to base public policy on science. Then much in the same way, I would claim that if Donald Trump says the schools must be open, some people are against Trump say, I don't know if, if Trump's for that, uh, uh, that must be a bad idea. Then if Biden starts saying we're going to base public policy on science, we're going to put science in its proper place. If you're in the opposite coalition, you might say, what's the hook? What's the catch? Biden must have something on it up his sleeve. If he's saying we're going to base public policy on science, well, there must be something in that that I'm actually going to object to. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. What am I going to object to? Well, Maybe it's these snooty scientists are going to come in and they're going to, you know, quote, try to control you. Uh, so you, that, that's been one of these themes in the last uh, several months, especially in things like, you know, mask wearing and social distancing and so on. Um, one of the claims on the right has been, well, this, this has nothing to do with spreading, stopping the spread of the coronavirus. Right. This is an attempt for the people on the other side to control you. And um, you, you might have seen this one viral video, a county, um, some kind of county decision making meeting uh, in Florida. And this, this guy comes in and says, you know, you will not make me wear a mask. I will not be muzzled like a wild mm. dog. Uh, and so the, that that theme, it, when some people say, well, we just need to use the science. Other people, if they think they're not part of that coalition and their tribal politics is constructed around a, a different place, they think, what's the catch? Well, the catch is this has nothing to do at all with controlling the virus. This is right. an attempt to control you, to control me. And we must fight it. And so in a way, science has become politicized more intensely than it was before. So as I said, it's it's never been the case that science has been non-political. It's always overlapped with politics. But I would say that's becoming intensified in the last right. several years. But it is remarkable, I would submit, how quickly the allegiances have changed here. I mean, I'm aware that there are more than two political groups in the U.S., but I would still argue that in probably 2019 still, you would have sizable portions of the Republican uh, or, or people who are uh, leaning right in the United States that would have argued that, that they're on the side of science, if you will, right? Because they felt like they needed to defend against uh, overly sensitive uh, uh, people who were um, deplatforming people at universities or things along those lines, right? That they were the ones that are standing up for uh, scientific freedom, freedom of expression, ideas like that. I think you could have made an argument that there are certain elements within the Democratic Party that were associated with being um, anti-science almost, right? By making, I think, legitimate points that, um, you know, the, the academy in the United States might have a diversity problem, 
and and arguments on those sides right and i feel like those um arguments have completely fallen by the wayside and now the allegiances have changed to a certain extent yeah i, I i'm with you there um in a way one one way to think about this might be that science has a lot of cultural cachet and that's mm-hmm. true across the political spectrum so you could view this in a way as as kind of the triumph of the enlightenment of um you know the last last three or four centuries uh, you know, everybody likes to have their smartphone. Uh, we like to have our, you know, internet. Um, we like to have uh, various kinds of products, you know, airplanes and, and uh, you know, various kinds of, of, of technology that are intertwined with science. The people who object to particular scientific findings, very rarely do they say science stinks, it's, it's worthless, uh, you know, get rid of science, let's replace science with something else. That, that's not what they say. Um, in areas like, like, for example, you know, mask wearing or social distancing, they will, they don't claim ignore science. Instead, they say, well, these people who are trying to tell you that we need masks and social distancing to spread the coronavirus, to stop the spread of the coronavirus, that is flawed science. So notice they're not claiming that right, science yeah. is irrelevant or should be relevant. They're saying, no, 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 that's not what the science shows at all. This is just people making up scientific claims and then trying to impose them up upon you. And often they will find some dissenter within the scientific community to try to make the opposite um, case. So you, you you probably heard of this documentary known as The Plandemic, which came out and I think- I have not it. actually, that sounds interesting. Okay, well, um, it, it went viral for about a day or two and it was one of these ones that the social media platforms um, shut down links to it on, on grounds of, of being misinformation. But it, it profiled this um, discredited scientific researcher named Judy Markovitz, I believe was her name. And so she's well-credentialed, you know, she has a PhD in, in a relevant subject and had some publications and so on. But at, at some point, you know, she had some, some problems with fraud and various things and she became a, uh, in a way, sort of a scientific outlaw. But she still, she can speak the scientific language. She, she, she is still well-credentialed. And so she was profiled in this, you know, uh, uh, documentary. And, and uh, she's not the only person. There's other, you know, kind of dissenters out there who, who, whatever somebody will say as far as, well, they we need to do X, Y, and Z in order to stop the spread of the coronavirus. There's somebody out there who will say, no, that, that, that's, to- that's totally wrong. That, that policy will be either ineffective or, or, or counterproductive. So, for example, with the mask wearing, this idea got out there that um, mask wearing, not only was it irrelevant to slowing the, the spread, it actually makes you more likely to get the coronavirus. I guess the idea is it somehow traps the germs in front of you and oh, okay. you in or, or something like that. But there, there was, you know, serious claims. I, I won't say they were made by serious people, but the, the claims were, were out there that wearing a mask actually makes you more vulnerable. So you can see how this is not a debate about should we look to science to give us answers? Right. This is a debate about what are the answers. People are dividing among those potential answers according to their tribal allegiances. And there's a, a big part of, of America, and actually not just in America, you know, you've started to see this you know, in, in some European countries and elsewhere, uh, of people who just, when, when they hear a claim that, you know, the science shows we need to do X, they start immediately thinking, no, that's not what the science shows. Well, Mark, if science is not going to lead us to finding the perfect answers to some of these big questions, if you can't get the politics out of politics, uh, where do we go from here? We're at a point, and um, you know this much better than I do, um, where the United States is maybe not unpres- 
unprecedentedly so, but at least very, very substantially polarized and divided. Science is not going to do for a lot of these political conversations what some people may, may think it will. Um, and it does not seem to be the case that Joe Biden has so far succeeded in bringing the country back together after the election. What will bring this country back together, if anything? It's hard for me to see what will bring the country um, back together, at least in, in the short term. I think over over the longer term, you could point to, to, to various sorts of things. Um, one being, for example, the Cold War. The Cold War, as bad as it was, you know, with the call from McCarthy era and civil liberties and, and lots of other concerns, it did, in a way, serve to kind of unite the, the country and the West more generally around a common enemy. And then at some point, that common enemy was gone. And so in, in my, my lifetime is roughly, uh, you know, half in the Cold War and half post-Cold War. You know, for, for you, it's pretty much all post-Cold War, right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, I'm the last but I, I remember a time where even if there was someone, you know, internal for whom you had some disagreements with, still there was a sense, okay, I still have something in common with this person. We're still uh, united in this in this common project. And whatever our, our flaws internally, well, we're still a lot better than, you know, the Soviet Union and, and the, you know, the gulag and all the restrictions of freedom and, and, and so on. Once the Cold War is no longer on the scene, it's almost like all of that dissent that previously was projected outward, now that's projected inward. So rather than finding the enemy elsewhere, you know, two continents away, um, you fight it internal to your to your own, own country. So one of the one of the upshots of this is having a common enemy can tend to unite a people. And, and one of the things about uh, about America since the end of the Cold War is there's there's no common enemy. You know, there's been some some possibilities, you know, Islamic terrorism might have served that way, uh, served that role in a, in a way uh, momentarily. And, you know, more recently, the rise of China. But Americans don't think of, of China today and, you know, in 2020 to 2021, anywhere near like Americans thought of, of the Soviet Union from, say, 1946 to, to 1990. So that's one of the one of the, the problems is that there there are no. Um, you know, external enemies to sort of divert this attention. So instead, it becomes searching for the the enemy within, and mm-hmm. uh, that, that that that's that's a real challenge that's um, not going to be easy to overcome. A second real challenge is people are just having fewer conversations across various lines of division. Used to be when there was uh, more organizations out there, what what we often call you know civil society. So all the things in between the individual or the family. And the state used to be there was unions, there was uh, you know clubs of various sorts. You would you would join groups and associations, and you would you know hang out on your front porch, and you would get to know your your neighbors well. Uh, these days, a lot of people they don't know their neighbors at all. There was a uh, a great um, advertising campaign that it was State Farm did. So you know they had their slogan is like a good neighbor, State Farm is there, uh-huh, uh-huh. and they, that's been their slogan for you know decades. So uh, uh, recently, they they wanted to figure out like, well, what do people think of neighbors these days? And uh, it used to be neighbor was somebody you could you know, that you knew that you could help you out if if you need something, you would help them out. You might watch each other's children and, and and so on. And these days, a neighbor, a good neighbor, is somebody who doesn't play loud music, who doesn't leave you know, <laughs> beer cans around in their yard, uh, and doesn't create a ruckus. Um, basically, you want them to be quiet and, and kind of go away. Well, um, I use that just as sort of an example of this larger phenomenon of all these places where people used to mix, and they're not mixing there anymore. Instead, they're mixing with a with a smaller group of sort of self-selected people 
Mm. If you're not meeting someone through unions or churches or community groups, and instead you're like meeting them through things that you you sort of seek out, right? Um, you tend to narrow the kinds of people that you inter- interact with, and that in turn creates more polarization because you're just you don't interact with as broad a segment of of society when you kind of cut out that that middle realm of of what we used to call civil society. Um, so that's a problem. So uh, one one potential solution to uh, polarization would be to reinvigorate all those things, all those places where you used to meet other people through through unions and churches and, and uh, civic groups. So that's at least a couple of a couple of possibilities. Is one we need to, we need to have a common enemy, uh, and two we need to reinvigorate the intervening institutions between the individual and the state. Well, then let's hope that we can do without an enemy and just uh, get back together again with our neighbors, and hopefully that will be sufficient. Well, thank you so much, Mark. This was extremely enlightening. I hope to hear from you soon, and I'm, I'm sure you'll uh, we'll get you back on the podcast very soon. Yeah, sure thing, Nicholas. This was fun. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Wittstock, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UWPoliticalEconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.